Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of 11 Questions, where each week we meet a new person and get to know them. I'm your host, Aman Dhiwana, and today we meet Nadia Hashimi, one of my all-time favorite authors. Let's find out more about her after this quick word from our sponsor. Hey Nadia, welcome to 11 Questions. Hi, thanks for having me. First question that I have for you is, how many years has it been that you have been writing? I started writing in uh, around 2008 to 2009. So it has been now about 13 years, 12 to 13 years that I've been writing. I guess if you don't count the uh, childhood years spent scribbling. (laughs) Wow, that's not a lot of time given the number of books you have written. I'm impressed. It's, uh, I think there's, there's a a bit of passion that has to drive it, right? So I'm very happy when I'm writing. And that's uh, what helps kind of propel the stories to to move along. And if you were not a writer, what would you be? So that's an easy one to answer. Uh, I'd be a pediatrician. That's what I was doing when I started writing. And I love being a pediatrician. And uh, so I often describe my situation as having, you know, two invitations, two parties on Saturday night. I've been able to at some times be both a writer and a pediatrician in the last year. I've been uh, just focusing on writing in the last couple of years, really. But both of the these kind of, you know, occupations have been able to connect me with people's stories and the context and the world and how it kind of impacts our trajectories, impacts the prognosis of our lives. So both of those paths have been unbelievable. Yeah, when you hear it in isolation, it's very hard to connect those. But I have had the good fortune to meet some authors now with this project. And all of them have so different trajectories going and somehow they have made it work. There really is. I think everything can be connected to storytelling, right? I mean, storytelling is part of our everyday lives. From the moment we wake up, we're, we're telling each other what happened last night. We're watching movies on TV. We're listening to audiobooks. So we are constantly consuming stories. We're constantly sharing stories. And so I think no matter what you're, uh, what you're writing in that little box of, you know, what your occupation is, the storytelling is, is part of us. Do you have a routine that you follow when you're writing books? I used to have a routine that I would follow when I was writing books uh, in pre-pandemic times. Um, so pre-pandemic times when I was writing books, I would, uh, you know, once the kids were off to school, then the house would be quiet and I would have my time to just sit down and write. And whether I was in the planning stages or if I was in the actual writing stages, I just commit my time and try to, you know, only get up for coffee breaks and a chance to pet the dog. In pandemic times, life has changed, not just for me, but for everyone. <laughs> and so we're, you know, working from home which is challenging. Uh, Writing from home with, I have four kids who are doing school basically virtually. And so it's very hard to get much of anything done. (laughs) Oh, I can't Um, even imagine that. I think I'm one person and I still cannot get things done. It is rough. I think, you know, our attention spans have been strained. Um, the ability to find a quiet space in the in the house is is difficult. Um, I'm very fortunate that my parents come and help me out with managing the the virtual school because the kids are young, and so for them to sit in front of a computer screen also is uh, their attention spans are yeah. uh, just as challenged as ours is. But you know, so sometimes it's getting some editing done at night when people are sleeping. Sometimes it's sneaking away for a couple of hours to just squeeze in something that needs to be polished up or an idea that needs to be jotted down before I lose it. So 
we've had to be flexible and learn to roll with whatever comes this past year. And what do you think takes up most of your time? You know, I will say that this past year has been um, a lesson in building emotional resilience with my children. I think each of them has processed this pandemic in different ways. So our isolation from family members, their isolation from their friends, the stress of how do I adapt to a whole new way of going to school, of learning. And there are so many challenges with virtual school too. And so we've been, I think, a lot more thoughtful and and I've put in personally a lot more time into sitting down and talking them through each of these frustrations, which has helped me understand my frustrations better as well. But I'm hoping that this will give them a real foundation that, you know, for going forward, I'm hoping that they're not facing another pandemic in their lifetimes, but there will always be challenges, right? There will always be struggles. And for them to understand how they turn that into a moment of of growth instead of uh, defeat. I love that. I think it's very important for us to learn it early in life because you eventually do have to learn it. So as soon as possible, it's better. Exactly. The challenge will come. We don't know what it will be or what it will look like, what form it might take, but there will always be that challenge. And, you know, since we're all together and we have to be with each other, I've decided to let me make the most out of this and really, you know, do a deep dive into that. What's a popular TV show or a movie that you refuse to watch? Game of Thrones. I don't know if I refuse to watch it, but I just haven't. It's too many seasons, too many episodes. And I think (laughs) There are some shows that I've reserved for like the, they're, they're on my when I retire list. Uh, so Game of Thrones is one as well as uh, This Is Us. I know people get so um, caught up in This Is Us. They're very, it's very apparently like emotionally moving. And, but again, a big I've commitment. Watched, I've watched Game of Thrones, big fan until the last season. This Is Us, I just watched one season. It's just like they somehow have made it like they will force the tears out of you. It's like that emotional and I'm like, okay, why am I doing this to myself? I don't need to be doing this. Yeah. Yeah. So, so those are, those are, I will get to them eventually. (laughs) I haven't come across anything that I refuse to watch. I think it's more, um, it may not be my taste, but I don't think there's anything that I refuse to watch. Yeah. And what's your favorite TV show or movie right now? I haven't really been watching very much TV lately. We did watch The Queen's Gambit. So I do like the shorter series because they're time limited. And so I know I won't end up binging and and losing hours of my evenings and staying up too late. And that was very well done. The colors, I mean, visually was pretty spectacular. So that was a good one. Yeah, I relate to that. I don't start new series for that reason. My friends keep recommending stuff, but I'm like, do I really want to just give so many hours where I have to actually pay attention so I just keep watching old shows I've already watched like Friends, Office where I don't really watch they're just noise in the background if I'm cooking or doing something else. Yeah yeah a little bit of a kind of I guess media company right? Yeah. (laughs) The good thing is that we've been watching um, we watched that and then it kind of spurred a little bit of a chess phase in the house and so right now we watch the movie searching for the search for Bobby Fisher with my children so now everyone's gotten into chess in the house down to the five-year-old so they they've been playing every day which is nice oh wow you might have chess prodigies in the house soon if if we do they definitely didn't get it from me (laughs) my (laughs) 10-year-old has been helping me coaching me (laughs) what do you think is the one thing in your life that you take for granted 
Mm, that's a good one. I think there are things that we try not to take for granted. And I would love to say that I don't take it for granted, but uh, in the moment to moment, I think we take for granted just how amazing it is to have an uneventful day, <laughs> just to be in the company of those that we appreciate, those that we love, um, because it is so easy to get caught up in the frustrations of you know, children not listening or deadlines or, or whatever it may be. Right. Um, but it is so profoundly important to have these moments. And if they were to be taken away, we would feel it just gravely. And I think just watching what's happening in the world around us, I think so many of us know people who've been affected by COVID or impacted within their families, what's happening with people's jobs, what's happening with people's anxiety levels in general the solitude that's been imposed, the, uh, this uncertainty. So everything that I see swirling around us, I'm hopeful that, that causes us to just at least sit with gratitude for what we do have in the moments that we have it. Yeah, absolutely. We all need to appreciate the tiny things. And I think COVID has definitely taught a lot of us that. For sure. I think it is those smaller things. Like I, I can tell you, I appreciate my morning cup of coffee is amazing. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Um, especially when my I've gotten my five-year-old trained in how to make it for me. So, oh it's, wow, how did you do that? <laughs> it was one of the first skills I, I said. If we're going to be doing homeschool, then this is what I need you to learn right away. I really admire that. <laughs> <laughs> and what is something that you think everyone should do at least once in their lives? Travel, travel to another country, travel to somewhere unexpected, see something you didn't expect to see taste something different, listen to music that is not on your playlist. I think some of the best experiences that I've had have been from traveling. And obviously, we, we miss it a lot in this past year. <laughs> that's what I was um, thinking right now. Like, Maybe that's why it's precious <laughs> at the top of my mind, because I haven't gone anywhere so long. Um, but it's, it's a really magical experience. I think sometimes when I've traveled to, I've been fortunate enough to travel, you know, just personally. And then also with, with books, I've traveled to um, India a couple of times, to South Africa, to Australia, New Zealand, France, Italy, and been able to sit in these places and talk to people about stories, about stories that can connect us and those common threads that we have. It's really powerful to be sitting in a country surrounded by a different language and yet feel a very easy and palpable connection with people from a different culture, from a, almost it feels like sometimes a different time. Yeah, absolutely. I miss travel so much. I had big plans. I'll travel more and more and then COVID hit. And now it almost seems like a dream that we used to travel at some point in our lives. <laughs> It really does. And I don't know when we're going to feel comfortable traveling again. Yeah. I know people are traveling, right? So it's happening. But in terms of like this global comfort of traveling. And so this is a really good time. I found, I read the book, uh, Dear Edward, recently, which is about a plane crash and just, you know, a horrific plane crash. And I'm like, this is a great time to be reading books about plane crashes so that there's no desire anyway <laughs> to be getting on an airplane. <laughs> Whatever novel there are about plane crashes, I'm going to cram them in now. That's a good tip. Not when I, not when I start to travel again. <laughs> like whenever you want to travel, just pick a book about plane crash. Yes, right, right. And then that's, that's done. <laughs> Speaking of books, uh, what's your favorite genre of books? 
So I, I can't pick one. I don't know if I can pick one, but I, I love fiction. Um, I think that, you know, within the world of fiction, I love historical fiction for how much it can teach, uh, even as it entertains, um, which I think is a, is a gift that's pretty amazing. And then I, I do love a thriller. I love a thriller that I can just kind of escape into and, and then wonder why it's so delicious to read about, you know, a murder mystery. I don't know what that says about us. That we <laughs> love those stories, but I do love a good little thriller at night because it's just, because you know, it is so fictional. <laughs> so it doesn't have, I think the, uh, the emotional pull that some other stories might um, like historical fiction. If you know that, you know, this is based on stuff that has actually happened then it sits a bit heavier on the reader yeah. on the reader's mind. Um, so sometimes I think there are certain books that you need at certain times of your life, certain moments, and you you have to time them correctly, right? <laughs> it, it, they reach you and connect with you in the right way. Yeah, way definitely. I really believe that even the same book can hit you very different depending on where you are in your life. Absolutely. I think, and that's why I think people reread some stories because there may be a different um, a different hunger or a different angle that you're approaching the book with. And if I were to ask you to pick only three books that you can read forever. Oh, that is so tough. Um, I might pick Love in the Time of Cholera. That's one of my favorites. Um, Barbara Kingsolver's book, The Poisonwood Bible, I thought was amazing. And then maybe Bel Canto by Ann Patchett. Those are three answers, but I could give you probably more and more. <laughs> but I'm really glad that I'll never be in that kind of situation, that kind of horrifying, uh, worse than plane crash situation where I only have to pick three books. Yeah, I can't imagine that life. I've been asked this question. I always pick series because I'm like, oh, this way I can sneak in more books in the industry. Well, that's sneaky. Like if you, if you had three wishes, what would you wish for? Wish for more wishes. Yeah, yeah I'm definitely that person. <laughs> Clever. I should have thought of that. <laughs> if you were to pick one interesting experience from your life to share with us, what would you tell us? Again, that's really hard to, to choose one. I think that there are so many, right? There are the ups and downs of life. There are like the profound moments where you feel connected to history. Um, I have been, you know, I was at the the Women's March, for example, in Washington, D.C. in 2017. I was there 2018. And that was a really powerful moment as well. And um, because I was there with an organization and standing up on some political issues, I had the chance to actually address this crowd. And so I was looking out at the National Mall with, I mean, just thousands of people present, mostly women, but a, a very, you know, a mixed crowd. And it was so powerful. I had my daughter with me and it was an amazing moment to see what people can come together around an idea and how visually stunning it can be, how emotionally moving it can be, how reassuring and affirming it can be to know that you are not alone in wanting something and wanting something to change, wanting something to improve. And I think that when we do that, when we read stories, right, we're reading in isolation. And that's why this world of maybe um, connecting on Instagram or through podcasts has exploded because, you know, the culture of, of wanting to read together, that book clubbing, that discussing with, with discussing with a friend 
is wanting that connection. You know, those, we don't want just the ideas, but we want the connection to others who are having the same ideas. Um, so I would say that that moment was a pretty powerful one to recognize that so much can be done by just stepping up, stepping a little bit outside of one's comfort zone, showing up and connecting with those around you. I love that. Thank you so much, Nadia, for answering all my questions. It's been so great getting to know you. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Now let's talk about your different projects and your books. I know you have a book coming up, right? I do. I have, here we go. Here's my advanced copy. I have Sparks Like Stars is coming out March 2nd. I'm very excited. Um, We've got some nice reviews already. And this is a story of a young girl who is, um, because of who her family is, she's in the palace, the presidential palace in Kabul in April of 1978 on the night that uh, a military coup occurs. And on that night, and this is a piece of historical fiction. So on that night, the president, his wife, several members of their family were assassinated and the bodies were buried in an unmarked grave and were not discovered for some time. And so this is her story. Uh, It's a fictional character that I've inserted into that time period of Afghan history a time in which Cold War tensions were rising um, and really coming to a head in that moment. A time also that Kabul was sort of a party town, a party post for diplomats of different countries. You had hippies traveling down from Europe, coming from the United States, Peace Corps volunteers wandering through the country. So a very kind of idyllic time. And against that backdrop, you have this military coup all of a sudden rock the country and turn it into a country where people were wondering if their neighbors were listening to them, who was getting reported to the government, and uh, and really shaking the, the structure of the country. So this character, through twists and turns, winds up in the United States, becomes an Afghan-American, and, uh, and then her past comes back to face her, and she returns to Kabul. Interesting. A lot of your stories are actually in Afghanistan, right? How do you do the research for these? How do you come up with such real characters? Because I've read your previous books and all of those stories really pull at your heart. Well, I'm part of a big Afghan family. My husband is Afghan, who's born and raised in Afghanistan. I think I've grown up with the culture, with the, the history, with the ongoing developing history. We know what is actually occurring right now. And I have been paying pretty close attention to what's going on. The impact of these decades of conflict, what does that do? So I take a look, you know, I try to be a little bit more examining in my day to day. And when I look at people, I try to think um, a little, you know, one step further, what are their motivations? So you could, we can all see people's actions, but it's one more step to take a look at their motivations. And, you know, what was the context that created this person, this personality, this set of ideals and and beliefs? And that's what I try to do with my characters is to examine them in a way that I can, because the better I understand them, the better shaped and formed they are. And then they just, they're like, they've gotten wings then, and then they do what they're going to do. And I'm only recording it. I don't have to dictate it for them. And did you go to Afghanistan at some point to do any research or do you rely on your sources here, your network and internet and books and news? So I have, I went to Afghanistan in 2003 
but not with the intention of doing book research. I was not writing at that point. I was, it was during medical school and I had a, a break and I really wanted to go. And it was the first time that I could comfortably go with my parents. Up until then, it had been uh, just too much going on conflict-wise. It was uh, a very eye-opening experience, a very heartwarming experience, very heartbreaking experience. It was like every emotion you could think of all wrapped in one for myself, for my parents as well. But during that time, I really wanted to see as much as I could. So I did visit schools and hospitals. And then, of course, you know, had family visits and, and you know, walking around town and just seeing sites and visiting childhood homes of my parents, for example. But the rest of my research comes from a diverse array of sources. And I mean, I love the historical fiction aspect because I get to do the research and then I get to like put together my, you know, my research binders um where oh God, I love that that big binder is, of yours oh yeah well I'm like a forever student I mean I'll have down to like a map right of Kabul because I need to lay out exactly where everything is and then I have to compare that to well is that where that building was in 1978 and I have to go back and you know fact check some of that because I do I do want to be as authentic and and factual as possible I guess I can see that in your book when I read them because it's almost like a person who's there who's writing it but I guess if you have binders this size you you are almost there <laughs> yes I've got binders <laughs> I think you know and, and it, the research is amazing I've been able to dig through there's the association for diplomatic studies and training and they have interviews that are done with the foreign service officers who were stationed in Kabul at the American embassy and cultural center and then I tracked down one of those individuals too and we had conversations and I asked her a lot of questions these were individuals who were stationed in Kabul during the time of the coup and so they're looking at it and uh, remembering their experiences from an American angle and perspective as well and the details are incredible right and so that's what I've inserted some into this story, like, for example, that the Americans who were stationed there put on, it was a party town, right? So they were having fun, they were having parties, and they put on a performance of the musical Oklahoma. So they're literally like putting on musicals while they're stationed as foreign service officers in Kabul, which if you contrast that to what's happening now, after 1979, there are no Americans that are stationed in Kabul and believing that it is a party town. That's very interesting to me. The way in my life I have seen Afghanistan news and all the portrayals, I could not imagine it being like that at any point. And I don't remember which book it was where it mentioned that women wore pretty liberal outfits at one point in Afghanistan, but that was also a shock to me. You have this picture painted of the country now, right? So it's very hard for you to believe it was different at any point. The images can be really striking. And, and those are the images that I grew up with because my mother and her generation, they lived in a couple that allowed them to go to school, that allowed her to go to university. She became a civil engineer. Her classmates also, you know, there were some other women there. They became physicians. They were, they had jobs. They were professionals. And so for me to see those pictures on the walls of my home, and yet when we turn on the evening news, I see a completely different country. It was, it's, sometimes like mentally hard to reconcile how one could become the other. How could this be one in the same nation? And that was one of the reasons for this novel was to explore the moment in time like that tripped the country from into something that seemed to be flourishing into complete conflict and turmoil. Yeah, I so look forward to reading this book. I'm sure a lot of our listeners would also want to read the book. So where they can find it and how they can buy it. 
Absolutely. You can find it um, anywhere books are sold. And I have links to everything on my website, which is just my name, NadiaHashimi.com. And it's also available through the publishing website. It's published through William Morrow, which is an imprint of HarperCollins. But I always recommend if you have a local bookshop around you, please support your local bookshops, your independent bookstores, and go in there and ask them for recommendations too, because these folks, they love books and we need to keep our bookstores alive as well. Indie Shop, there are online resources as well that help connect with the independent bookstores. Yeah, a lot of indie shops have now websites and they deliver online. I think they also have changed their format during COVID, which is a great thing. Now we can support them even more. Yes. And even for audiobooks as well. So they'll do print or audio. They're fantastic resources. Other than this book, are you working on anything else right now? I am. I'm working on a young adult book and it's still too early for me to talk about that one because it hasn't taken its final shape. I'm hoping that I'll be able to finish it within the next couple of months. Um, but uh, this is the first time I've been behind deadline on anything, but it's moving slowly, but surely it's moving, but we'll see. I just wanted to explore. I think we're, I'm interested now in exploring more of the Afghan American experience, uh, hopefully in ways that will more of, of my life and a different aspect of the Afghan American experience, because, uh, I, I don't think it is healthy for us to get pigeonholed as, you know, the war culture or the people yeah. who have only war stories and conflict stories. Our stories are diverse, our lives are diverse, and our literature should reflect that. I totally agree with that. I wish you all the best with your book. I'm pretty sure it's going to do great and it's going to be a great read. And thank you so much for being my guest on the podcast today. It was so great talking to you. Oh, I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for reading and sharing this with your followers as well. Listeners, go check out Nadia's book. Trust me, this will be a good one. I speak from my experience of reading all her books. And I will meet you here again next week with a new guest. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Nadia. Hope you enjoyed getting to know her as much as I did. You can also watch a video version of this conversation on 11 Questions YouTube channel. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you are listening. And if you like this episode, please leave a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter at 11QuestionsPod for more videos and updates. And I'll be back next week with a new guest. Bye!